Hey there, everybody. Welcome back from uh, your hibernation. It is November 17th, 2016. Wake up, ladies and gentlemen. Ooh. The future is here. Oh, my God. And whether you are interested in participating in it or not, <laughs> this is the Machination Log, and we are the movie crew. Oh, Movie crew prime right here. We got Nicole. Mostly functioning. Ryan. Oh, in a new era. And David. Um. David is vertical. I am vertical mm -hmm. for the first time in a week and a half, and uh, it doesn't feel good, but it is great. Yes. Um, that, is, that, is, that is a great way to put it. That is as well <laughs> as I can put it. We're here to discuss No Country for Old Men, despite our various wounds, psychological, physical. Um, and other, yeah. And other. Yeah, there will, be, uh, there will be an addendum to this that we'll probably go into that a little bit more. But um, for now, we're here to discuss a dang movie. We're here to discuss No Country for Old Men, a Coen Brothers classique, like mm -hmm. so many of their movies. I think this is our first time having a repeat director, but there's two of them, so I'm okay cheating on that. <laughs> that's actually that's a good point. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There and you go. they they put out enough good movies. I think they kind of deserve it at this point. I mean, I'm sure we'll double up eventually on some other people here. Mm -hmm. you Probably. Know. Um, no country for old men. Um, fucking it's, great! It's yeah. a fucking just, great. Just amazing. It's a, it's a good movie. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen it before, there's no reason to listen to this necessarily. Um, I want to talk about this at a level where everybody kind of already knows what's going on because spoiler alert. Because there's no there's no group of people unless you are sp like axiomatically opposed to dread and like gore of and what it really mostly muted gore um yeah there i mean there there are some medical shots in there that are uncomfortable unless you are opposed to those specific things you should have seen this movie and if you haven't you should just go and watch it and you should if you have seen it you should be watching it again yes it's it, it is the movie um and if you and if you've seen it and you didn't like it you should definitely what, watch it again. What's wrong with you? Well, it's I, I can I can understand not this is this is one of those movies. Calm down, Ryan. Yeah, I'm sorry, Calm I'm sorry. down. No, no, no. It's, it's totally fair. I mean, yeah. I, I would take it from a slightly different tack. If you can't see what's good about this movie, we can't help you. Yeah. Are you donate, human? Donate your eyes to science. I mean this this movie is this movie to use just any cliche you want. It's it is a masterclass in the development and production of a movie. It's. It, everything about this movie comes together the way that I, I there's there's no way the Coen brothers were disappointed with how this came out. No, and what I like about this movie is that it is very intrinsically Coen brothers in its structure. Um, it harkens back a lot to Blood Simple, their first movie, a lot to like Fargo. And structurally, you know, it is very, very intrinsically Coen brothers, but it is an adaptation of a Cormac McCarthy novel so you get you get some dialogue and that's a little bit stronger than i think their their other films and not only is it stronger um just because the dialogue's better it's also uh and i think ebert said this really nicely like the already great dialogue is just vastly improved by the delivery uh, of it by the actors in the film. So you have what's already a great Coen Brothers film with like the icing on the cake that like the dialogue here is so top notch that you just have a winning product all the way around. 
Yeah, I haven't read the book, Ryan. I think you said you've read the book. Yeah, I've read I've read a lot of Cormac McCarthy stuff. It's um, it's not his, gr- it's not his best, but even that's fucking great. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. so, like you know, like I have to I have to kind of balance it out. It's a ve- it's a very good book. It's a solid read. It's a short. It's a quick read as well. Okay, and that's also kind of fun too. There's some, you know, obviously we're not. I don't want to harp on the idea of, you know, parsing out where the book and movie differ from each other. Um. They there obviously is more in in the book, but like the elements that are stripped out that are taken out for the movie, it doesn't exactly inhibit the, like even Cormac McCarthy's wider points and uh, and tone of the film as well. So um, in the end, you know, I'm, I'm not to say that I wouldn't I wouldn't hesitate to guess, and I think this is another instance where the where the movie perhaps is better than the book. I mean, I enjoyed the movie more than I enjoyed the book. Uh, but both are very, very good. And um, yeah, if you've never heard of Cormac McCarthy or if you haven't read anything by him, you should start. You should <laughs> and do a that. Few, a few of his movies have been adapted, like The Road. Yeah, The Road. Like Cor- yeah, with Cormac Viva Mortensen McCarthy. as well. All the Pretty Horses. Um, yeah. I think Blood Meridian was supposed is, to get is adapted. On deck. On yeah. deck. It is in, it is in, pro- it's in uh, progress. In progress. And uh, that's, his, that's his masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. I've only got about halfway through that. It wasn't in a good place when I tried reading it. Yeah, that movie that. will, that movie will um, haunt you for a while if you read that. It's, but it's the one, book. Yeah, the book. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, the, yeah movie, the, book. the movie's to be, you know, TBA yeah, yeah, as TV. to whether it'll haunt you or not. But, um, but, so a well adopted author. Or a well adapted author. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think he is foremost one of the top five American writers of the last uh, 25 years at least. I would say what, confidently. What kind of um, aesthetic? So Cormac McCarthy is a um, he is a clearly a writer based in the Western tradition uh, as well, but then he also has some of the his his language and his use of the English uh, of English is uniquely his own. Um, but also I think that what is kind of combines with him is that he has perhaps one of the most vivid imaginations in writers today as well. He is not merely great in the in the kind of like technical way that he describes and how he formulates his uh, his writings, but also in the kind of like vivid imagination that kind of inhabits the world around him. Uh, this also can apply to like the two main main types of writing that he does. One are the kinds of um, not more not mainstream because but he isn't you know he isn't Oprah of the Book of the Month guy with like all the pretty horses, cities of the plain. I mean, these are great books, but not um, as extravagant as uh, as his other stuff like The Road would be, where there are these like really amazing, this apocalyptic vision that he has and is, and how he's able to convey it. But then also, if you look at his his darker stuff, which would be like Outer Dark, uh, Child of God, which is also a movie, um, Blood Meridian, you know, these things are just so lush. But at the same time, he is not a structured plot-based writer either. And this is what can be a lot of frust- very frustrating for people because the way that his worlds are constructed are uh, is about the feel of the language, not about moving or, you know, moving the plot from chapter to chapter to I chapter. I think that maybe that's why it works so good because, you know, it's like you've got the really good dialogue feel from McCarthy and then you've got the Coen brothers who are masters at executing, you know, a storyline. Well, and so th- like put together, you mm-hmm. get like a really strong product. That, that is interesting that you said, you say he's not heavy on plot because one thing that stands out in this movie, if we classify it as an action film, and I see no reason to do that, I actually think one of the easiest comparisons to make with this movie is Die Hard. Mm-hmm. Um, not only for quality, but also for <laughs> also for format. Um it because uh, it it involves someone who is resourceful but not powerful getting in over their head and you know un- there's there's a, there's a lot of good parallels which 
we'll see as we go along. But the um, the plot in this movie is one of its inc- probably one of its biggest strengths yes, among yes. many because it spends so much time. Like there's a ton of scenes that could have been edited out of this movie, but the Coen Brothers seem so insistent on making sure that this movie is tightly woven Mm -hmm. so that all of the origin of everything is understood. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone goes to the store to procure the things they need. When characters get hurt, they heal themselves and that process is shown. It's just everything, uh, finding, um, what is it, Uh, when uh, Brolin initially runs into uh, the money, he uh, he runs into the, uh, I forget what the generic colloquial term for it would be, but when he finds the money, mm-hmm. he finds the money by going on a goose chase where you get to see the wheels turn in his head mm-hmm. the entire time. He shoots a deer, follows a blood trail, sees another oblique blood trail, follows that, there's a dog, he finds the trucks, He it's just, it's so methodical. You see every scene. Mm -hmm. Like, I I would be terribly interested to know what scenes were cut out of this movie. Well, now, traditionally, and this harkens back to their very first film, Blood Simple, which you can actually draw a lot of parallels between these. Traditionally, Coen brothers don't cut anything because they are methodical storyboarders. So, I mean, they sit down and they storyboard every single scene. And that's where stuff ends up on or off the editing floor. You know, when they commit to filming a scene, I mean, it's going in there. They've already made that decision by the time that they're filming. So there's very few, you know, cases where you have, oh, deleted scenes as a Coen brothers extra on your DVD because they just... That's just not their style. Like, if it was going to get cut, it got cut on the storyboard floor. It didn't get cut in the editing room because they've decided they want it in there if they're going to waste the time shooting it. Yeah, the, the, the deliberateness of the Coen brothers' approach is kind of unique yeah. to them as filmmakers anyway. Well, and it also starts out as, it also comes back to, they started as indie film directors, and you have to be very conscious about how much money you're spending yeah, on, on film if you have a tight budget. Yeah, so I just, in kind of like entering into two things too, I'll kind of like wrap up with Cormac McCarthy, but then I want to get to the issue of the plot thing as well. Um, I mean, interestingly enough, I think that we are in a good position here. And why, I mean, when I heard this movie was being made, you know, this was God back in 2006, 2007 or so when I heard this movie was being made, I was very excited, right? I was very excited because um, more than anything else, I think that, you know, Cormac McCarthy is one of the most cinematic novelists of our time, right? The idea that cinema is not as different than movies in the sense that it is more conscious of the world and universe that it creates through filming and through plot and through story, right? Those things need to be interwoven in a way that is primarily visual, but then also is able to express more than just the visual aspects of the of the scene. Um, now, what is, I think, very interesting is that the Coen brothers are perhaps one of the more literary filmmakers that we have today, where so much in every scene is tied into, connects with, drives the story and, and, and energy and movement of the film, and nothing seems to be wasted, right? Where the, the Coen brothers will have downtimes or scenes that perhaps don't make a lot of sense in them, and yet you can always kind of feel that there is a purpose and a point, because Coen brothers don't make fast, action-packed movies, right? Like, 
many people when they when they watch like Fargo, for example, are struck by how fucking slow the movie is. And this movie too. I mean, even though it's mm-hmm. essentially a high speed chase, quote unquote, it's, it's it the is slowest not, action movie. Yeah, ever. It, yes. All of the action takes a very like slow, methodical pace throughout. Even though there is action, like literally the entire time. Right. And so, <gasps> what I think is so interesting within this is that. While Cormac McCarthy tends, when I say that he doesn't focus on plot, it, the purpose of each scene is not to intentionally move the, you know, either to drop a piece of candy along the trail you're wanting the readers to go through or to use a different type of way to say, like, it's not a, a point of a scene is not to per, to produce the energy that leads it to the next one, right? A lot of times there will be a kind of meanderingness through this. Um, and once again, the point is, is that it's not the writer's responsibility to tell you what this is leading towards, right? Rather, once again, it would make sense to have the characters be the ones that fucking move the story forward, not the authors. And this is what happens in this film. Like you mentioned, the the way in which the money is revealed to us in this film is through a thought process and and has causes and logic and reasoning within the character's own perspective. As does, by the way, a lot of the scenes where we get Ed Tom Bell, who is the sheriff of this town, where this uh, shootout takes place and where the money is stolen and where a lot of the, the plot resolves around. And even the way Anton Chigurh moves through the Once the again, the reasons, too. the point. I mean, this he's is got all... his own set of reasons for mm-hmm. why he's doing all of this stuff. You can almost put all of the characters into like a Venn diagram in the way that they cross over because everyone has like their storyline and it all crosses over a little bit, but nobody ever has the full story here, which is much like burn burn after reading another Coen brothers <laughs> movie that I know is a fave amongst the, the crew here. Well, it's just, it's just ironic that the idea of them being very deliberate does not mean that they are um, overbearing in the way that they tell the story, right? The deliberateness is in a sense, the, 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 the way in which the story is revealed to you, but it is not like, exposed or told or forced down you in any stretch of the imagination. And, and that's that's partially because, as I was saying with the uh, with the editing, there are a lot of scenes, but there are a lot of scenes. There, There's no lingering. Mm-hmm. Things are always happening. And it's the, the balance the Coen brothers struck here is part of what makes this movie remarkable, uh, at least to me, is that for two hours, there there are almost no shots in this movie where it's just people standing around and you're just taking in what's going on. It's always making cuts and moving it forward, but it has, but because of the pace of this, which is frankly, to some extent manic, because when in a normal action movie or in any normal movie, even though there are a lot of jump cuts and they're doing, generally speaking, it's because you kind of understand what's going on. It's like, okay, these people are having a fight or there's a chase scene going on, or these two people are arguing, and you don't really have to know exactly what's going on in your head um, to be able to follow what's happening. But in this movie, because everybody's actions are so specific and they all tie together so well, like the narrative just keeps pushing forward, every scene needs to have this paucity of information. Yes. Which is incredibly well done. Okay, so I want to to give the best demonstration, but it's also... Fucking so well done. So um, our, our our hero, um, help me out, guys. Oh, Brolin is Lulin? Lo, Lu, yeah, Lewin, yeah. Um, Llewellyn Moss. Llewellyn Moss, Moss, yes. When he, so after he gets the money and goes back to his trailer that night, um, he, we see him in bed and we see, it's the middle of the night, we can see he's awake and he's, and he's like, oh hell, you know, and he gets out of bed and he starts filling up a gallon jug with water. 
Now, what is very interesting is that a lot of times the tension in the in the in most scenes needs to be defined as the interaction or the conflict between two or more characters. But rather in this, the Coen brothers usually use this device of starting off a scene with us not knowing what the fuck is going on. Why is he awake? What is he upset about? Why is he getting water? And then once again, if for, for attentive listeners, right, we kind of can piece it together as it unfolds that he is filling up this water to take back to one of the victims of the shooting from earlier in the day who was pleading with him for water and who he ignored, right? And he's, yes. when, and when uh, I think his, his wife, um, Carla Jean comes up and she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm about to do something dumber than hell, but I'm going to do it anyway. And boy, yeah, it and was then, a decision that was dumber than hell. Yes, very good foreshadowing there. Yeah. But once again, like we then find out why, why he's doing what he's doing, but we don't start off knowing what, what, knowing, knowing what he's doing. And that creates an interesting tension that they use a lot in, in these scenes. What the fuck are these people doing is only revealed as we watch these scenes. And it's... Once again, it creates a different kind of tension, one that's not driven between the conflict between two characters well, that's always being stated to us. And the other thing us. is, you know, we, as watching it, you know, we may not understand why the characters are doing some of this. Like, you know, as a as a normal rational person, like, you know, when I'm watching this, I'm like, why the hell would you go back to the scene of that crime? But the thing is, like, I'm not Lulan Moss. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, you know, this guy has his own fucking, he has his own agenda. He has his own, it, you it, know... His own way of maneuvering poorly through this world for the most part. And, you you know, he he's from, going From a moral to, stance, maybe. He's plenty capable. Oh, he's capable. Person. But, you know, like I said, he is aware when he's making dumb decisions. You know, because it's like, you know, you're like, wow, that's a terrible decision. And at first you almost think, well, you know, because that's when he starts getting caught. But the thing is, the money had the transponder. They would have found him anyways. That was just a poor decision on his his, yeah. his part but but i think i to ryan to ryan's point in order to understand the scene where he's filling up the water require it for it to be at all possible for the audience to follow that and granted i'm not suggesting that everyone in the audience picked up on why he was filling a water jug and going back out there but it require in order for enough of the static of the background to not drown out why he would be doing that so mm -hmm. that at least some people caught that he's going back to to give water to a guy who was dying of thirst but mm -hmm. wasn't dead, it requires that you are paying attention. I mean, it was technically between two people, but it is essentially an internal monologue that has to be conveyed clearly enough for you to understand that that's why he's doing it. Mm -hmm. And that again, that balance has to be almost impossible to achieve. Yeah, in cinema, you can excuse me. In Cormac McCarthy's novels, he's very He's usually very strategic in the way that he conveys internal thoughts of characters. It's it's usually done for effect, and it's usually almost described as like an an outsider's perspective on what is being done. That kind of like relays this internal idea of what is happening, and he loves the kind of ambiguity of of describing a, a, a key scene from the outside and with multiple interpretations to kind of like you know, convey the, the, the larger mixed mi mixes of emotions and of characters in pivotal moments from the perspectives of the story and the place and the setting and, you know, the cosmic and spiritual. I mean, the guy is like, has a, has a lot of threads that he kind of rolls through in a lot of these, in a lot of his novels that kind of also come through in the main points of what this film is as well. But it was also very cool is that when you link this up with the Coen brothers who are so fucking effective at using small little cinematic devices in order to convey story. I mean, one thing I have to just mention right now, 
is that the sound of this film is absolutely incredible. You, ha I have never experienced a film where the sound was so well executed to the to the central conveyance of these of the story in this in this film. It is un unparalleled yeah, in its greatness. No score. Like there's. There's a swell very near the beginning during uh, Tommy Lee Jones' monologue. There's almost, but for the most part, this is almost no score. Like, there's no musical, there's there's almost no musical cues throughout mm -hmm. this to, for you to, like, to help move you along and help you, like, understand how you should feel in these scenes. Like, you don't get that. I, I don't, and what's what's nice about that, aside from being kind of an obvious trick to make sure that you don't know what's happening next it forces you to pay attention to people's intentions, mm -hmm. um, which benefits the movie greatly because I don't know that there is music. I was thinking about this the last time I watched it. There isn't music that would make sense to play over Llewellyn Moss's original discovery of the briefcase mm -hmm. that wouldn't make the whole scene feel glossy yep. in a way that just kind of, like, you know, it, it would be the... Um, it would be like the dusty trail kind of music and you would know that he's just like, this is what he does. And oh, one day this hat, like it mm -hmm. turns it into an actual fairy tale mm -hmm. to some extent. And that's, it, which so would so completely betray well, and, what makes the movie effective in the first place. And right. even, even like a, like I love the, um, the, uh, what's essentially the shootout in the middle of the street between him and Shiger later mm -hmm. in the thing, but there's no, there's no musical cues telling me, okay, we got to get amped up here because we're in essentially the middle of a gunfire fight. Mm -hmm. Like and there isn't any of that. Like it's just people awkwardly kind of sneaking behind cars. There's no music telling yeah, me that no. this is a high intensity moment. But ironically, it sounds like a fucking gunfight. Yeah. Like, it sounds like what a gunfight yeah. would sound like. Well, and and as a result, uh, the the effect that this has, there's no there's no musical score that could under properly underline the fact that we don't know when this fight's going to be over because we have no fucking idea who Shigur is, or at yeah. least Moss doesn't. No, Moss doesn't even he doesn't, technically. He doesn't even know who he's shooting Look, at. I've seen Moss, this movie. Moss I don't have a better understanding of Shigur's character. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Moss doesn't technically know there's only one guy. Yes, like it's it, it's so it. It's the only way. Like, there's no, there's no kind of music. You couldn't even do like the violin. You couldn't even do like the string section doing the low hum mm -hmm. yeah. for tension, because even that would kind of ruin the fact that Moss is completely at a loss yeah. for what to do. He's just in as in the dark as you know you would be if you were sitting behind a car, knowing somebody's probably after you, but you have no idea who. You have no idea what they're armed with. He doesn't know if he's dead. And he he's doesn't, shot doesn't at the guy. Doesn't know how big he is. He doesn't know There's, anything about him. He, he has he's bereft of details. <laughs> yeah, um, which allows us to transition quite nicely to uh, the man himself, uh, Javier Bardem. In what it has to be his breakout role, it was his breakout role, and I think he had been in he had he had been in, um, in, in Spanish, Spanish films. films, yeah, prior. noted noted actor yeah. in Spanish films. Yeah, no, I had seen him in in some of Inarritu's like earlier Spanish oh, okay. films and stuff, but nothing uh, nothing mainstream Hollywood uh, at this point. And I think that that worked really well because if you had gotten anyone else to play the role of Anton Chigurh. You know, the problem is, is when you have specific actors playing things, there's associations you have with those actors because of other roles, because how you perceive, you know, and to have someone who, who you don't have any relationship with as an actor play this basically character who is, you know, 
He's designed, a ghost. Designed to be foreign. Yeah, yeah, he's foreign. He's a ghost. Like, you know, Tommy Lee Jones' character thinks that he's chasing a ghost. He can't even verify that this guy is real. And I think that that was an excellent, excellent casting choice because mm-hmm. it really, it made the character feel as foreign as he is to the people in the movies because you don't have any prior relationship with Javier Bardem as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that helped tremendously because I, man, I, I love this role. I think he, he was amazing in it. No, the, the, the introduction he to the character. Me out. Yeah, the introduction of the character is something fucking fierce as well. Uh, but much like to the Coens, the, the use of detail and, and of, of imagery and kind of conveying, um, you know, conveying an, oh, a, a, something that happens in an impactful way. Um, him strangling the deputy. Oh, that was good. And then the aftermath of it, and you see them lying down, and you see the scuff marks from where he's been trying kicking to get out of it. And there's just this like this 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 flood of of scuff marks on the floor and the linoleum. That's so so good. That is so such an awesome detail to put in. And once again, the violence of this. Uh, what what I think makes the violence so shocking is the kind of tension. Once again, each. Paying attention but to this movie. But there's no music bringing no. the tension. I mean, it's literally you just see him walking up behind this guy, yeah, and you see, you're okay, like, yeah, "Oh we, fuck!" We see we see the deputy on call. We see him essentially get out of, move his handcuffs to the front, walk up behind. As soon as the deputy hangs up, he grabs him by the throat, by his handcuffs, pulls him back onto. Uh, Sugar pulls the deputy on back to him, and it's a we battle. I mean, it doesn't. He doesn't go yeah, down we see easily. These, these overshots of him of Sugar really struggling in this hideous, ugly face of his. Yeah, and then. We're, we're, we hear this kicking and this kicking and this gurgling. And then finally what, what allows the scene to go and to kind of decompress is we hear the artery uh, cut in the guy in the deputy's uh, neck, the squirt of blood. And then we, we see the, we hear visually the kicking subside slightly and then Shakur breathes out like, and then like, holy shit, you know, like, but that's what brings the tension down is this guy's fucking artery bursting in his (laughs) neck, you know? And like, it's just... It's those little, it's those little constructions that are so, so fucking well done in the Co- with the Coen brothers. And, you know, you are exposed to this over and over and over again in these small little scenes. And it's once again, the, like the, the technical aspect of it. I mean, for one thing, the, the fucking film is beautiful. It looks beautiful. Oh, yeah. These it, like long, like plain, hilly plains. And I, I actually, I've only, I've never wanted to go to Texas before. But after this movie, I'm like, I wouldn't mind checking a little Texas out, you know, like heading out. You definitely get a good feel for like the vastness of the of the Texas outback, so to speak. Like, I mean, yeah, it's it's thousands of square miles occupied by 15 people. Yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) and you get you get a great sense of that throughout this film. Yeah, but Shigur, I mean, his first kill is maybe the most conventional one he has in the whole movie. (laughs) Yeah, this is this is the one the thing about this character, and it's it's weird. Like, I don't know if uh, McCarthy's. Uh, I don't know if McCarthy covers this in the book and the Coen brothers just took it, but, I mean, this also ties into the sound editing. Chigurh manages to maintain an unknown identity throughout this movie up until very near the end, I would say. He starts to become a slightly more known quantity just by force of screen time alone. But the variability in the methods by which he is capable of doing things changes so regularly that he he is an unknown force the way that a monster in a horror movie is supposed to be mm-hmm. an unknown force. Yeah. He's never actually revealed. Um, the most obvious one of these, the one um, 
Actually, no, you know what? I won't say that. I, I won't say that with any certainty because the next weapon he uses uh, is a uh, is a cow stun gun. Yep. Yeah. Which uh, ties this to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But um, yes, it, yes, it does actually I have a note <laughs> right here about, you know, we tied in the Texas, we tied in the setting and in, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre after we discussed had a long discussion about how you kill cows. We get to watch Anton Chigurh kill people in that same method. Mm-hmm. And cattle-like yeah. cattle human beings yes. to boot. Yeah. And he blows out the locks with it, which is pretty cool, too. There's a couple of good scenes when he when he yeah. blows out the locks. It's a practical device. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, Ryan. I know the point you want to get to in a second, but okay. I, I just want—I want to—I want to cover the—I want to cover the weaponry first because it's just—it's he—he kills someone with this stun gun. Like if you knew what it was, maybe you know you could put it together. But as someone who was not aware of what it was, mm-hmm. when he just like puts the thing up to a guy's forehead who also has no idea what the hell it is, and just instantly kills the guy, and then walks into his car and steals it, and uh, still a completely unknown quantity. He then shows up in another scene with who are apparently his handlers or at least someone else he mm-hmm. actually knows. He's apparently affiliated with someone. He's not just a complete psychopath. Mm-hmm. Um, he then t- turns on them and kills them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he does that with a pistol technically, but there's no reason to expect that he's going to kill the people he actually knows. And then he does that. Mm-hmm. And then but in- they did see him. Yeah, they did see him. <laughs> yeah, but we don't learn that rule until later. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> we only have we we have to infer it at at that point, but it just he finds his way. And during this time, he proves that he's smart. He proves that he's not just insane. Mm-hmm. He's a very canny individual. He's but, very methodical. But, that's for sure. But then he goes to um, skipping over because Ryan, I, the point that I su- the the point I assume you're going to make covers the uh, the gas station. But the next weapon that he uses. Is a fucking silenced shotgun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that thing's impressive. And that gun does, it's not a real thing. Yeah, that's true. And that just may, especially the sound. Mm-hmm. In particular, the, the sound on that gun is eerie. Um, and just the way the, the way that he uses it. Like he he goes into a motel and shoots. The way he shoots, carries it around. Like with him. everything, everything yeah. about it. Like there's no, there's no way to know. Like we, we can kind of brashly assume that this. This film obeys the laws of physics, mm-hmm. but the novelty within the laws of physics is very well stretched with this character. Yes, um, but but that's the thing. It, it, I, well, we haven't gotten to the Tommy Lee Jones character, who I like a lot. But you know, he kind of brings that up. Is like is like as a normal person, you don't even know if this is working within the laws of physics because this has now reached a level that you just can't comprehend as like a normal fucking person. Yeah, he brings that in, you know, into like the that, monologue. That definitely you know, becomes a factor for the characters in the film. Mm-hmm. Tommy Lee Jones' monologue at the beginning of this movie, and which I, I think is taken, I don't know if it's taken verbatim from the book. I know Just it's about, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it does a really good job summarizing the attitude he has throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that attitude plays very well into a couple of scenes where uh, this this is very, very Coen Brothers. It seems like the most Coen Brothers-y thing about the movie. There are a lot of bystanders in this movie. <laughs> and the Coen Brothers are really good at casting bystanders. Yes. Getting regular-ass, very homely-looking, mm-hmm. talking, acting people. And they are scattered throughout this movie. Can I tell you my favorite one? Yeah. Okay. So when um, Shiger finds out where Llewellyn uh, is is living, 
Um, he goes to the trailer and there's nobody there. And then he goes to like the office, like the office, like the manager of the yeah. trailer park. And she's a big, hefty woman. And she's, we can't give out no information to him, you know, like, like the, 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 t the pacing of everything. But once again, um, what's cool about that scene is not only that woman's just general awesomeness, but like the way that we know, we've already seen what Sugar is capable of. And then we also are kind of concerned about whether or not like he is going to kill her uh, because she won't fucking give him what he wants about about yeah. Llewellyn Moss. And what fucking de-escalates that scene is a toilet flushing in the background. And then he like looks over and, he, and he, he doesn't like look, but he can hear this. And then he decides he just slowly like walks away from her. Like it doesn't say anything. But like once again, those little fucking moments where... You know, we are put into this world and we're like, Jesus Christ, you can fucking just murder this awesome old woman, trailer park manager. No, 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 no. There's a toilet flushing and he doesn't want to make too big of a mess in all of this. So he decides to just back away and leave. What a nice touch where every time he kills someone, he's looking at the bottom of his shoes to make sure he's not tracking blood around. Yeah. Well, like that yeah, happens yeah. A, a, a handful of times mm -hmm. throughout the film. He's careful. Yeah. Yes. Clean yeah. hands. What was the first thing he does after he strangles the police officer? He goes in and washes his hands yep. in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Yep. Like, it's just weird that how much time he thinks he has. Like everywhere he goes, he just has enough time to do what he needs to do. No matter, anyway, it's just creepy stuff. But yeah, he's so, a professional. Well, he's a, but he's a horror film. You know, this is, he's a horror monster. Like this is, I think, right, the right thing. Like you mentioned, Sugar in the book, Sugar is not described like at all. Okay, right? He is, uh, and what, even his name, C H I G U H, I think. G U R H. G U R H. Yeah, yeah. Sugar. Yeah, like is not like. That's a meaningless name. It doesn't mean it doesn't come from anywhere. It doesn't mean anything. Like Sugar is kept this like just this like force. It's like he's a phantom. Yeah, like a he's just ambivalent within the whole story, and it's just fucking like you mentioned the idea of his ghostness, his 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 presentness is never present. You know, like there's just this fucking thing that goes through this whole fucking book and this whole movie, and I mean it is so so good though and so well done, and I think that they had you know that's. Where the movie could have definitely faltered a lot was in it was in the sugar character. But like you said, I think the Corn Brothers made a lot of smart decisions about this. But then they didn't like keep him in the back, like a like a a, a character always in the shadows. You know, they're like, no, no, if we're if we're gonna do this, we've got to show him. He's got to be present, and we can't, you know, we can't like kind of like hokey this thing up by saying, well, no, he'll never show him because clearly people would have seen and interacted with him, right? And I think the tension of being able to do this is that no. You know, he's, he is not superhuman, but yet he has a kind of, like, capability that is simply beyond other people, right? We've talked before about Moss's resourcefulness, right? His ingenuity is what makes him kind of the hero character within this. And yet we see that, you know, Shigur also matches, you know, matches him for that, right? Not only does he have this just, you know, really intenseness in the way that he goes about what he's doing, but then also has the, to match the resourcefulness or even to exceed the resourcefulness of our hero. And it's, you know, it's, he's outmatched in every way. Yeah, well, and Moss, Moss is the closest thing is Texas's last hope. And yeah. to, uh, <laughs> he, he rep, he reps Texas pretty hard, but, uh, he does get overcome, unfortunately, mm -hmm. by, by but this he whirlwind is, but force. He is, but he is a failed, he's a, a, a flawed individual too, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, you take <laughs> some, aren't we some. all, aren't we all? Yeah. No, they, uh, the, there's the, every time Bardem, actually, it's not even just whenever Bardem runs into anybody, but um, but in particular, there are a couple of scenes. The the one in the trailer park, uh, the one in the gas station is a very popular one that gets compared yeah. to. Um, it's, I, it's very frequently compared to the scene in Inglorious Bastards at the beginning when um, 
whatever his name, Hans Landa Christoph is. Waltz, yeah. Waltz. Oh, the milk thing? Yeah, when Hans Landa is interrogating. There's, there is a lot about the design of a scene. And granted, there there's a lot to differentiate the scenes from an actual like subtextual perspective. But if you need a comparison for the kind of scene it is, that would be the one. Mm-hmm. Um, where it, this scene seems to betray more about Sugar than any other scene in the movie because – and the way – the number of ways you can read this scene, tremendous. Um, because the – the people, the people of Texas don't understand. They don't get people like Sugar. Um, the guy at the gas station has been living his life. You know, he married into Very pedestrian a, life. He married into a gas station you, you and a trailer. Into it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but he didn't, you know, I mean, if that's the way you want to put it, sure. Yeah. He raised <laughs> There's no way to put it, David. He, he raised he raised kids, and but this is what makes that scene wonderful, is mm. that the old guy. The old guy has just been living his life. He raised kids down in Temple, Texas, mm-hmm. and, you know, they came back here because yeah. they wanted – they clearly – they don't say this because – and this is this is a point that I definitely want to hit. There's no – no one's got a backstory, mm-hmm. and I love that. I mm-hmm. love that this movie does – it. It keeps going forward. Yes. This movie spends no time reminiscing about anything. In fact, there's a scene when Woody Harrelson's character, uh, the bounty hunter – um. His boss, his contractor, um, actually gives him the opportunity to say something about his history. He's like, you've led something of a charmed life, haven't you? And all he says in response is, I don't think charms had a lot to do with yeah. it. <laughs> That's the closest we get to a history on anyone in this well, movie. Well, yeah, and then the one other time we get a little history is we do we do learn that that uh Lulin Moss was a welder, and he gets fucking annoyed when the guy starts asking him what type of weld. He's like, if, if you can weld it, I fucking welded it. Yeah. And then to get back into the country when he crosses over to Mexico, we do learn that he was a two-tour Vietnam vet. But yeah. that's about it. Like, yeah. that's all we know about him. Yeah, like, it's incredibly, <laughs> incredibly sparse. But in that in that gas station scene, I mean, in, in Chigurh's world, this man couldn't be any less relevant or small to mm-hmm. the grand scheme of yeah. things uh, because he has no obvious capabilities. He's not useful the way that um, Shigur is. Shigur is the one right tool to use his own words. Mm-hmm. That is who he is. And that, I mean, if you if you want to play into, and that's one of the many, many ways you can read it, is that Shigur is the oncoming wave of utilitarian capitalism okay. sweeping over a world he that... He's the change that yeah. these old folks just don't know how to process. He's the all-numbers motherfucker yeah. who... Um, who The the ethnic, yeah. foreign, <laughs> all-business, like, he is just that guy. And he's willing to toy with people along the way and dispirit them. So, but I wanted to... I, I gotta kind of emphasize that, you know, part of the main question of the movie is what 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 is sugar all about right like what is his motivation what is his this because the guy um because one thing that we do find out about sugar is from woody harrelson's hitman character you know like you know he's like he's a psychopathic killer there are plenty of those but you can say that he kind of has like a rule system that kind of like transcends money you know like morality like he he operates by his own rules and and the gas station scene is very good because um he knows that the guy the gas station owner is not directly linked to the goal he's trying to achieve, which is to get Moss and get the money, right? Like, he knows he's not, like, directly connected to this. And yet, he still th- has to p- kill him because the guy begins to inquire 
And once again, that he says, well, you know, you guys getting any uh, rain up your way? And he's like, what way would that be? And he's like, well, you're, I saw you were from Dallas, which means the guy noticed his license plate. Mm-hmm. And so now Sugar has to make a decision, right? This guy, right? Because Sugar apparently only has stolen cars, right? So his yeah. car is stolen. And if it comes back that this is the place, like, they might that fucking this track this got, guy down. Yeah. So he's, Sugar has to make a decision. But interestingly enough, Sugar does not make the decision about whether to kill this guy, right? He leaves it up to the gas station attendant through the mechanism of the coin flip, right? He says, flips it, he lays it down. He's like, you got to call it heads or tails. And he's like, I got to know what I'm putting up. He's like, um, up what, what is staying to gain? He's like, staying to everything. everything. Yeah, what, what am I putting up? He's like, you've been putting up your whole life. You know, like this is this is all leads to this time. And it's this coin has traveled so long for it to be here. Its whole journey has taken it to here, to this moment. Now call the coin. And, you know, you get this, you get this really neat sense that what, is driving this guy is something that is simply beyond what we can kind of understand, right? It reduces down to the coin flip, and the kind of terrifying nature of that is that, you know, it can we, we still don't know the outcome of this, right? The kind of concern that we would have about any situation where we would be put into like a 50-50 chance of like living or dying, like nobody would want to be put into that. And yet that's where we're at, and of course, the scene resolves itself in a rather fun and enjoyable way where once again the tension gets relieved, and even Shigur perhaps shows a little bit of, you know, gameness with, you know, recon- you know, yeah. even when a guy guesses correctly, he's like, well done, you know, like, good, you know, like, <laughs> it's like, I mean, the, um, you know, the mechanism in this, in, uh, of Shigur in this is kind of truly terrifying, but it's also important because the only other time in the film that he uh, uses this mechanism of the coin flip is with Llewellyn's uh, uh, wife, uh, uh, Carly, uh, Carla Jean, um, and that I think has right its own, yeah, yeah, that I think has its own kind of indication that Shigur um, you know, is willing to kind of compromise because he does give her this option, right? There is the there is the choice that he that he gives her in this, uh, despite the fact that, that this would be like she doesn't want to take oh, that I, choice. I read that totally differently. No, oh, okay, I mean yeah. I see that 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 scene that scene clarifies the gas station scene in a what do you mean How in do you a figure? really basic way for me. Carla Jean sees through the uh, yeah, it's the term I wrote down for this. He, she sees through the jaded sophomoric way of looking at the world of fate mm-hmm. in that way. Like the coin flip, he puts all this weight on the coin flip because it's supposed to represent, you know, just the causality yeah. of the universe and the chaos of and it. She's and she's just the fact like, that, you're the one that has to do this yeah, anyway. The she, coin doesn't matter. She calls him on it yeah. in a way that no one else why in the Why does he give her the option though? This is my point would be that why did he give her the option? Why didn't he just fucking kill her? He said he was going to kill her. He said he had, he said he was going to do it but so in a sense, what I think the what, the point I was trying to make though is that I think Shigur goes back on his own word, which is something we'd never seen him done in this film before. He goes back on his own word to to give her the chance of living. When he told Llewellyn, you know, like you you are dead, right? When he, he yeah, tells you're him, dead you're dead, you're dead, you, Llewellyn. You can't. What you do now is only to save Carla Jean. If you give me everything now, I'll kill you. I'll leave her. He doesn't do it. So he, by his own me- measure, has to fucking kill her. So why does he? Why does he give her the option? I don't want to dis- disprove your sure. Yeah. Why does he give her the option? Right. That's that's my that was my kind of curious point as well. Where he does, I think, soften and be, maybe because she sees through that. Right. Is that kind of what he well, maybe recognizes? Because she does. I mean, because she does kind of call him out in a way that nobody else who's like face to face with him calls him out. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's still futile anyways. It doesn't help her. 
Well, it's just interesting that, you know, if they tried to resist, they'd more than likely lose anyway, right? Yeah. So it's either I'm going to 100% kill you. If you know, if you try to resist, I'm going to 100% kill you. No, but I'll give you 50. I'll give you some agency to fucking get out of this. I'll let you get some agency th through through this mechanism of the coin flip. I, I was trying to come up with a uh, with the contrast with when he kills. I don't remember Woody Harrelson's character's name. Oh, um, um, do you have Carlson? Yeah, Tuck, uh, not not. Um, yeah, you're right. There, you're right. It's like something Carlson or Carlson uh, something. Oh, oh, what is it? Carson. 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 Yeah. Um, yeah. When he kills Carson, it, the situation is very similar. Carson basically accuses him of being crazy. And so does Carla Jean, but the difference is that Carson tries to bargain with him. Yeah, Carla okay, Jean mean, does yeah. not. No. Carla Jean accepts her fate in a way that most of the other characters that are resisting or are actually in the way mm -hmm. of Shigur do not. She is actually, she, she hasn't necessarily given herself up to him, but she she sees the futility of it in it and well and won't call it yeah well yeah. i won't I, now I, you got you make the decision he's like i can't i can't call it for you but that's not you know like they're but talk, she, but they're she already said, talking she's like the coin it. yeah but like she coin said, don't she have nothing to do with doesn't it doesn't have anything the coin to do don't with have it. no say yeah, yeah. The coin don't have no say it's all you and he's like he's like it's already it's already flipped he's like you have to call it i can't call it for you and i mean i that scene is so about the subtleties when the breaking of his voice when he first says call it, I think he's fucking restraining the fact that I don't, maybe he doesn't want to kill this woman, right? Like, once again, to contrast with the gas station attendant, his call it is like, call it. You know, like the yeah. huffing. Yeah. But when he first says it to her, he's sitting down and he says, he's like, call it. You know, like he, he, he his yeah. voice is breaking and I think he fucking doesn't want to do this. And she, and she once again, like, you know, like, I'm not going to do this, which, I mean, in a sense, logically would mean that you'd have to go back to the original fucking premise of why he's there, which is to kill her no matter what, right? To kill her because he told, told Moss. That I, he's, I was, that he's yeah, you're, do you're, it. I got to fucking yeah. kill her. So I think that, you know, the, what develops from that, like, once again, to me, the most interesting thing is that he gives her the coin flip when he, sh when by his own measure and his own rules should not have. And that's what I find the most fascinating scene from this, where you get. But she this... was right in the end; it didn't matter anyway. Oh yeah, no. I mean, yeah, yeah. she's gonna die. I mean, yeah. I mean, but the, the <laughs> only chance she had would be to call it, and then she's like, "Fuck you, I'm not calling." Which yeah. is well, once again probably the most admirable thing in the, <laughs> about her character as well is that you know, like, I'm not going to do this. So, you know, it's just so that scene is so well done, and the mechanism of that I think is so interesting because of the kind of once again the roundabout way in which we're kind of revealed who this character is because we're never explicitly told anything other by by Shigur himself we're never told anything by Shigur himself and we're sure as hell I mean we don't obliquely. even know quote unquote who he like works for essentially you know because it's like he he's kills... a tool yeah he's yeah, just like I mean, you, you hire the right tool for the job yeah. or whatever yeah which I mean he did kill the people he was working with That's so. because the they hired he, another tool. Yeah, right? yeah. They betrayed so. him. No, 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 no. He kills the people that he was working with. At the beginning, at by the beginning the when he gets the transponder. Oh. Yeah. So he's already kind of off the rails as it were. But, well, but they, that's okay. They, but they see, they've seen they've him. They've seen him. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's one of the rules. Yeah. You figured that word, okay, figured okay. the word would Actually, get out about now him. Now, I want to bring like, up... And you got to meet, 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 meet Shigur to pick him up. Be like, I'll leave the motherfucker a note. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, like, and unfortunately, <laughs> I didn't have time to do as much research as I would have wanted. But I, you know, I wanted to pick on one other scene. And it's the scene at the end after um, 
after Moss gets killed, you know, mm-hmm. Lulin Moss gets killed, and Shiger is waiting in the hotel room where he was at. And Tommy Lee Jones, it's a crime scene. You know, it's supposed to be all, it's all done off. But Shiger's still waiting behind the door. And Tommy Lee Jones goes inside that room. Shiger does not kill him. I mean, I do understand on the flip side, Jones never did see him, mm-hmm. which was very good for for Jones. But I still don't quite understand, like, why was he waiting for him anyways? Oh, I think... That scene just left me a little little confused. I don't know what everyone else's kind of opinion was. I mean, like, I sort of understand why he didn't kill him, but if he wasn't going to kill him, I don't know why he waited for him. Well, there's... I I mean, the the way the the visual storytelling came off to me was that Shigur was coming back to... See the, the money. Yeah, see if the money was there because he leaves a dime oh, that's true. on the. That's true he leaves because, a dime um, on the floor. Yeah, because because Shiger didn't kill Moss. It was the other cronies because they got yeah. the the information. Yeah, the Mexicans from, killed him first. Yeah, the Mexicans got to him first. He just got there late to the party and was waiting to see if anything else was. Yeah, that, gonna that, that arrive. Mm-hmm. That so part to is speak. a little ambiguous though because yeah. they even mention that the Mexicans would have made off with the money, yeah. even if they were going out in a hurry. But maybe not. It's. Hard to say. Well, then I think also, too, that the the shot of because it's a very strange scene where we get once again, you know, we get we get Tommy Lee Jones with his headlights into the room. Right. We see him come come approach. We see the fucking door, the lock being blown out. Yeah. In sugar, so we, we know out. he's it, yeah. there or has been there. Well, you um, even see there's the shot of him so, in the shadow. OK, so this is what I th- I don't. I think that this is ambiguous. I would make the argument that I don't, because he goes in the room, right? Yeah, he, goes he in, does. He goes, I, he sits on the fucking bed. Yeah, I think that once, I think that this is, I don't think Sugar's in the room. I think that the Coen brothers were heightening the tension within this to kind of like emphasize the ghostness of the character. The idea that Tommy Lee Jones. I did feel like I, there was I think, maybe, I think yes. Tommy Lee Jones, the character knows that he is going in this to face Sugar, facing his own death. And I think the Coens remind us of this by showing this glimpse of Shiger in the shadows before he enters into the room. But once he enters into the room, Shiger is not mentioned only with the dimes on the floor indicating that he had retrieved the money. And uh, I don't think Shiger was in the film, but I think that that was shown to us to A, emphasize the drama of the moment itself, but B, maybe to kind of like internalize as in the audience that Tommy Lee Jones has made this decision to go in there, knowing the guy might be in there, knowing what this guy's fucking capable of. Tommy Lee and you, goes you know into that, that fucking he hotel. Want he could have walked away, yeah. but he doesn't. He fucking goes in. It's the only time, by the way, we see Tommy Lee Jones, uh, Ed Tom Bell, with his gun. Every other scene, he never, he doesn't even fucking even, touch a gun. Well, even he starts out the very beginning of this film talking about there was a day when the lawmen didn't even have to carry firearms. Yeah. And that that day is now past. And mm-hmm. he's having a hard time reconciling the fact that, that like, it's a new dangerous world out there. And he, but once again, he, he, it's, I just think it's done. I don't, like I said, I would make the case that Shigur is not in the room, right? It is just, it is shown as a kind of visual cue that this is the, the, the situation that Ed Tom knows he's putting himself in and makes that conscious decision to do it anyway, right? Even though we all, we all would have known he wouldn't have, you know, stood, stood a chance. Like he would have, he would have died if Shigur was in that room. Yep. That'd be my case as well. Okay, yeah, I, I found there was a little ambiguity in that scene, but it did build some good tension. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, especially when Tommy Lee Jones does not get killed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um. We can transition to talking about Tommy Lee Jones. That seems appropriate. Okay, so before we do that, though, like, 
this movie is all, also some great humor in it. Um, and Tommy Lee Jones is the main character that provides the kind of <laughs> the limited amount of levity in this film. That, but he is he does provide uh, some of it. There is some good humor between I love I love Llewellyn and Carla Jean's relationship. Like that is like probably one of my favorite well relationships on in in film in a long time. Um, their back and forth and their and their enjoyment of each other. I think you are able to see why. Right, the strength in both characters is displayed in its own way, and why they would fall for each other, I think, is kind of cool and demonstrated in that relationship as well. Like why Llewellyn and Carla Jean love each other. There's a lot of implicit trust, and the strength of the yeah, two she characters. She doesn't question anything. She literally just no. Is, she she questions, she questions but, but but she's not... willing to trust that Llewellyn's hiding things from her for a good reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a very second level understanding of a relationship. Well, but I, she is. He, she trusts that, she trusts Llewellyn that he would not put her in a situation that she could not handle. And the unfortunate thing for Llewellyn is that he, much, much like anyone else, has underestimated fucking the, Chigurh. The gravity yeah, exact, of his yeah, like, I mean, particular this normal situation. People, yeah, like this could have been handled out. And I mean, Llewellyn makes a mistake in doing that. But the way that she trusts him, I think, is is a very fucking cool relationship between them right i'm not saying it's 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 good or it's neat or it's it's a, a well-executed relationship because of the way things turn out i mean everybody's fucking dead in the end i mean don't get me wrong but like the nature of their relationship is what i find interesting and um and once again and also they, they it's enjoyable they like they clearly have a good banter and enjoyment between each other as well as does Bell and yes. uh, his wife. Okay, yeah. So Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So, but yeah, I his, think that was probably a little bit more solid of a relationship. Yeah, but their fucking uh, his enjoyment uh, and and his hilarity in this as well. Um, also, um, Garrett Dillahunt plays his deputy, um, which I love. Garrett Dillahunt. Um, he is. Um, he was in the uh, assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. He's one of my favorite characters in that. Mm-hmm. And then he is also in a show called Raising Hope, uh, which is one of my favorite sitcoms. Of the uh, of the last couple of years as well, so I'm a big Garrett Dillahunt fan. He's also in the Mindy Project, which I've been watching because I, I have a girlfriend. So, um, yeah, I, I really like that. Just to cap the uh, cap the comparison to an actual normal action movie, that this movie has a bunch of cops mm-hmm. that are just they're two steps behind everybody else. Like yeah, they're man. always they're always catching up. They're reading in the newspaper what's what's going on practically, and one of them is getting too old for this shit. Mm-hmm. Like it just it fits a stereotype <laughs> yeah. so well, you know. Law and order, law and order is always too far behind to help. But they like and but there's such an earnestness too. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, Jones's character and granted Jones's character. Once you get past Chigurh, is of course the next. If you want to fall into the philosophizing part of the movie, it a lot of this movie is a narrative inside Tommy Lee Jones's head. Yes, and um, it's, the film's also portrayed that way too. Yeah. yeah. As yeah. is the book, the book. As the is book. the title. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's um, all of his scenes are about him coming across things that he even, just doesn't understand. Well, like, even and even if he like comprehends at a surface level what's going on, he is not sure that he is prepared to deal with them, mm-hmm. and that that just ends up eventually culminating by the end of the movie with that confront that non confrontation with Shigur, which is so harrowing despite not happening, and in fact may have been better if it did. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as he survived, of course. Um, but then that would that, have worked if he would have survived it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's one of those things where he has not, he is afraid of a force 
that he has not actually encountered. Mm -hmm. He has only heard about it um, and witnessed its aftermath Mm -hmm. and just been glad that it wasn't there. I mean, he goes to all of these sites the first time, the burned out car. And I he love goes that. To the they're shootout. like, you want to go check out that site? And he's like, I don't know. I saw it the first time. Yeah. I don't know why I got to look at that shit again. <laughs> yeah, if they're like, <laughs> are, are, have any new bodies accumulated? Yeah. Like, I guess we can miss it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's just, it's, it's this incredible, he doesn't want to confront, he, he doesn't want to accidentally become part of that equation. Mm-hmm. He wants, he wants so badly, he is the young man who wants to be like his old man. Mm-hmm. And he just, he doesn't think he's up to it. But he's also surpassed because, when, you know, when he recalls at the, you know, because he's kind of, he gets, he's very philosophical at the beginning and then at the end. And at the end, he recounts a dream where he talks about how his dad, also a lawman, you know, died way before the age Tommy Lee Jones is now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and he knows that that's his direction. He's having a really hard time, you know, coming to terms with that. Yeah. Like, what does the guy tell him? He's like, you can't stop what's coming. That's just vanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, he's having a hard time coming to terms with his mortality and the fact that the world around him is very, very different. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's not and he's just not recognizing what the old timers had going for them. I mean, that's the scene where he talks, every scene that Tommy yeah, Lee Jones talks to other people is, is highly informative. Yeah. Um, he talks to his, uh, I, I didn't catch whether it's his uncle or his nephew um, is the, the guy in the wheelchair. It's uncle. It's yeah, his it's uncle. uncle. Yeah, it's his father's brother. Yeah. Um, that character, I he is of that era and sees through all of all of Ed's fears and essentially sees them as him not actually experiencing what he's afraid of. Like it, that comes across multiple ways. Like the way that the fact that he doesn't, um, he doesn't realize that violence of this kind is not even novel to his era. Yeah. Um, the way that, um, uh, what was it? Uh, his uncle didn't even want to take on, didn't even want to take on the badge that's just become part of a tradition of his family mm-hmm. and the fact that Ed Ed clearly um, did it voluntarily and his uncle did it out of obligation mm-hmm. as opposed to out of this general motivation to be like someone that he knows from yeah. his past. Mm-hmm. Like the it's it's the conservatism of obligation versus the conservatism of like optimism or mm-hmm. pluck. Yeah. And one and one person, even though uh, his uncle, wish I had the guy's name, but uh, even though his uncle got paralyzed, he is much more psychically equipped for what he's been asked well, to he's do. He's confronted those demons in a way that kind of Tommy Lee Jones is still working through. Well, he's out, he's also got the perspective of being outside of it as well, yeah. right? The idea that you'd be responsible for it is somehow. I mean, because the end of the the end of the phrase, which is that in order to be in order to kind of overcome this, you'd have to become part of it as well, right? To say, all right, you know, I'll be part of this world too. Like he's not, he feels that it's changed and he's not comfortable that he's willing to do and say what it would take necessary, what it would require of yourself to like overcome sugar. Like, you know, you you would have to do something that you might have never thought yourself capable of doing. And he, I don't, you know, rightly, is having some fucking reservations about yeah. this. Like there's, I mean, you know, there's a way in which you can, you know, People do what they do now because they're very comfortable in the ways in which they have, you know, acclimatized themselves to their fucking surroundings and the moral decisions of their life. The idea that you would go and consciously disrupt that 
is something that is pretty anathema to most people. But the idea that you'd be that you'd willingly put yourself into a situation that those choices, uh, you, those those future decisions would be in an ambiguous state, and that you might have to make new decisions and reframe this world. Most normal normal people don't do that, right? <laughs> normal people don't do that, right? And if anything, you talked about the the inherent conservatism that people have towards that. Part of what that is is a fucking actual resistance to having to do that, right? I mean, the idea of being 55 jobless and having to, like, read, like, you know, to learn how to operate a computer. Yeah, like, like learn not, a new skill. Yeah, like, you got, I mean, for, it's kind of weird to talk to someone who has a fucking existential crisis about do, being, about having to confront a world like that. Like, it sounds, it sounds so strange to us being young and, and you know, or at least some of us maybe who, who were young enough when we younger. had to learn these things. Yeah, younger <laughs> enough when we were able to, like, easily bounce into these things, yeah. right? But, like... You know, when the Matrix gets invented in 40 years, I mean, we're going to be like, you know, we're going to be little Ed Tom Bells in the yeah. world, you know, like not knowing where this will take us and what it is and fucking probably resistant to the fact that this would require us to reevaluate something that we had established ourselves and built on in our lives as well. And, you know, the idea of it being no country for old men is that, you know, the, the, the philosophical, philosoph philosophical, philosophical themes that are running through this bad boy um, are varied and, and and extreme in the way that they can be juxtaposed against each other. And it's something that I'm not comfortable coming down and saying that I've really mastered or understood. I don't have a kind of like master reading of this film or this book in any sense of the word. And, I, and to a certain extent, I think that in a, it, we have to kind of recognize that putting us in this ambiguous place is a little, maybe half the point of what old country, no country for old men is trying to express to us. Sure. But why not try? No, <laughs> oh, no absolutely. The, the struggle of making sense, I think is what we're, is what we're at here as well. But, if I could maybe just back it up to the point too about it, about the idea of being old in this world or the idea of gaining, of, of growing old also. Um, Cormac McCarthy wrote this book when he was just 75 and that was something that was, you know, that he, I think was kind of really coming to grips with when okay. he was writing this book as well, uh, more so than any of his other works. And, okay. you know, you can get, definitely make an argument that this is, you know, the ruminations that are going on, excuse me, and Ed Tom is exactly you know, the larger ruminations that I think a lot of people would have to kind of confront also as well. But like I said, it's, it's just, it's just so goddamn good. Like this is just so, so good. I mean, I never has gaining old and being uncomfortable with the changing world been presented so masterfully. I've got to tell you. But again, even, even that read, even, even that, that most basic, not philosophical sounding read, I almost think doesn't, doesn't go back far enough. Cause Ed Tom, Ed Tom was old before Ed, Ed Tom was old before he was old. Mm -hmm. He always wanted to be like the old timers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that's, that is a young affectation of mm -hmm. him because he's not, he's not that old. He's retiring early. I don't know what that would have technically meant in the eighties, but he's, <laughs> he's, he's clearly younger than 60. Yeah, like no, he can, yeah. he, he could keep doing what he's doing. Um, he's, he's not prepared for this world because he wanted it to be like the world that of he was talking about generation. in the beginning. Of your, yeah. the world of his father. Well, that's what's good about that scene with his uncle in the wheelchair is that he fucking describes this this scene when, um, I don't know if it's another of his relatives, that gets shot to death in his fucking, in the doorway of his own yeah. home. Like, you know, yeah. like this, like the idea that there's some sort of like new violence in the world that's like come about, like, I mean, once again, it kind of like disabuse him of this notion that there's like, the world is so horrible. He's like, there's fucking horror back then, you know? Yeah. Like, this isn't something that just like randomly appeared overnight or that hasn't been coming or been a part of this world. No, right. This is Ed Tom. This is Ed Tom slowly coming to a realization that the world, the world that he bought into 
never really existed, mm-hmm. which I keep resisting the urge to pull political tendrils into. But no, but it is, but it is part. I mean, once again, politics is what the world is expressed through a very specific medium, right? But it, I mean, part of what I'm fascinated about politics with people is that the amount of fucking just um, the the way that you can tell a lot about a person the way they talk about politics, right? The idea that 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 their views. Kind of their view, people's views on politics, I find, are some of the most simple and effective ways that you can find out someone's philosophy about the world itself, about who they are, about how they relate to other people, about how the individual relates to society. And that's one of the things that I think is so interesting about politics that you can really find and get to the core of people's essential beliefs. Because anything else that you do tends to get wrapped up. You know, if you talk about art or music or religion with people, right? It gets codified in its own language, and people. You know, like it, it, they talk more about like, you know, what makes them feel good about these things or why they like these things. But no, politics is something that you that you don't usually like. Yeah, it's and not that, something you like, but you have an opinion about it. Yeah, and that that has a kind of <laughs> distillation of their views about the world and especially about other people. When if you talk about religion, it's usually people's internal views of what it is. They never like say that they have like a religious obligation to other people, right? Like <laughs> talking about that with other people, they're like we're talking about religion, you know, like we're talking about politics. Well, that's that's got its own word. That's proselytizing. Yes, exactly. So. And so when we are kind of like looking at the way in which this in which this film kind of confronts us to, you know, look at the world, right? I think we're right in the sense that, you know, sugars have always existed, right? Like people like sugar, yeah. these kinds of main, you know, these these half maniacal uh, forces in the world have always existed. But m- what has changed is perhaps like you maybe even mentioned before, like has the system or world or society around it come to benefit people that are operating like sugar is as well, right? Are they becoming more prominent and more capable in our society? And, you know, the, the, the way in which this is presented to us in this film is so, so well done, right? It is, in a sense, seamless with the otherwise excellent construction and mechanics of the film also, where we're glimpsed this world through the character's reaction and building around it. And it's also, I think, very interesting too, and I'm almost done here, is that this occurs in a kind of rural setting, right? This isn't a mm-hmm. big city kind of, uh, this isn't a big city kind of story, this is a rural, small town, medium, small city type of story. And this kind of means that it is perhaps, you know, being being brought into this world where it primarily hadn't been, right? It's changing, but it's also staying the same. And the way in which this film kind of balances those two tendencies, I think, is really, really well executed. Agreed. Uh, that covers most of the characters and such. Yeah, I, I had one other scene that I wanted to yeah. bring up and discuss with you because okay. um, it was one of my my little things. Um, so after Chigurh visits Carla Jean, uh, there is the, you know, and it's probably the most, like, explosive thing in the whole goddamn film. There's the car <laughs> crash. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this ploy gets used too much in films where you have like everything seems okay and someone's driving and all of a sudden there's you know a big side swiping car crash out of nowhere um first i find that like in movies it's 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 a little bit exhausted um so i didn't particularly like that but i just wanted to see what you guys felt like at the very end like when he walks off uh with the kids and stuff because i almost got this feeling um, you know, he gets he gets in the car crash. Obviously, he doesn't want the ambulance to find him. His bone is sticking out of his arm. He goes and buys a shirt from a kid, and he wraps it up yeah. and just walks off and tells the kids, you know, you never saw me. Mm-hmm. I felt like 
like at like the fact that they would put that in because you could have ended the movie just at him looking at the bottom of his shoes to make sure he didn't have blood on his feet, you know, as he as he left Carla Jean's house. You could have ended the movie Mm -hmm. there um, and not had too much problem. So I I felt like the car crash was a little gratuitous. I also felt like the scene where he gets the shirt from the kid harkens back a lot to the early Brolin scene, mm-hmm. and my memory's like a little off. You're right on. When he's right on the border. Yeah, it, it's very close to the Brolin scene on the border, and I and I didn't know if they were trying to uh, maybe uh, maybe express some kind of similarities between those two characters, Brolin and. Um, the Anton, you know, the Lulin Moss and the Shigur character, because there was such a kind of similarity in how those two scenes played out. And I found that, you know, with the Shigur one, it could have been left out and I would have been okay with it. So I was just kind of curious kind of how you guys felt about that ending. It is. It was one of my very small gripes with this film. And it's not, it's not game changing, but it was something that didn't sit with me quite as, as nicely as it could have. Yeah. I'm not sure about the specific comparison of the two scenes, the parallels, but I, I I will agree. It's definitely, if, if you had to cut a scene out, I think I'd be fine with that one. And if only because the only read, the only meaningful read that I take on it feels indulgent in a way that That's the rest I mean. of it the... felt unnecessary because we know that he doesn't want to be seen so we know that he would have walked away from the scene of an accident but the accident felt gratuitous well to I, me. I i mean specifically indulgent in the sense that everybody in the theater wants this guy dead mm. and this is a chance for him to die and he just walks away from it like it, that kind of indulgent okay. i'm not sure how else to read that scene aside from sort of an almost like ironic knowing wink at the audience that this guy's not going away and i don't know that the tone of the rest of the movie justifies that yeah so that that was that was just something that didn't quite sit with me as well i was just curious what you guys thoughts were on it it's i could you can make the argument because if you reimagine the film of him of him just Looking at his looking at his shoes after killing Carla Jean, getting in the car and driving away, and then the immediate scene after that is the Tommy Lee Jones in his in his kitchen talking about his dream. That is the official denouement of the film. I think that does. I don't. I, it it. You know, we're kind of left in the sense that you know you wanted a final little bit of explosiveness at the end of the climax because this. The, the you you definitely let me, let me back it up here. If you if you wanted the kind of harsh ending. Or some sort of explosiveness at the end. I really would have think. I really thought that it would have been a mistake to show Carla Jean actually being killed. I, no, I, think, I like that they chose yeah, like, not to show her being yes. killed. I liked the way that was handled a lot, which is why it was hard for me to juxtapose that with all of a sudden him getting sideswiped in a car out of nowhere. You know, totally by chance. Yeah, I mean, it, it just know, it just kind of once again maybe maybe puts its thumb a little bit too much on the scale of saying that, you know, Shigur is this, you know, he will, he will, he, he, con- yeah, he, will, he will endure. Go on. Yes, he yeah. will endure. <laughs> and, and that that is, once again, just reemphasizing the overall, you know, real kind of like frighteningness of what this guy is and what he represents as a character too. I mean, if that's maybe, you know, why you want to say that nothing, you know, th- he cannot be stopped, you know, this like this Terminator-like quality to the character, I think is probably one of the more interesting things about it. But, I mean, it's, 
I, if it's if it was a conscious decision, and I'm actually having a hard time. I think it is in the. I think it is, is it, in the book. Is it yeah, in the yeah, book? Yeah, like okay. I do think okay. I, if my memory serves, I think it, it does. Okay. It is in well, the I book. Well, I guess I guess maybe I can forgive it a little bit if it, they're just following the book. But I I did have a little. I do not forgive adherence to books. I, yeah, no. Okay. I mean, yeah, it's no, but it is. It I is. like I said, that was one of my small gripes with the film was I had a little bit of a hard time with. The, the whole, like, sporadic car crash scene at the end with mm -hmm. him. And like I said, and the fact that it it lined up very similarly to the uh, Lulin Moss getting the shirt from the kid when he was crossing the Mexican border, I, I didn't know if they were trying to infer some sort of, like, character parallels because there was a lot of parallels kind of just in the way the scene played out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure on that. Although, yeah, Ryan, to your point, the pacing. The pacing there is weird it's, because it's the, a problem. I think yeah. Yeah. that is a problem of going from him looking at his feet and driving away to because that they scene. handled yeah they handled the Carla Jean death so elegantly and mm -hmm. so non like non violence in terms of like visuals like yeah. it was handled well, so well even even so even quietly. before that scene the scene before that one is the conversation between an old timer and Ed mm -hmm. Tom Bell and then before that one is a tense but still low tempo scene of him conf uh, going back to the motel. Yeah. yeah. So it's a very it's a very slow end to mm -hmm. the movie. So I mean I guess in that way I can see a little bit of variances. Well, Coen Brothers movies are kind of famous for their endings also. You know, like they've got some you know they they have they build some controversy about the way that they end films anyway. And you know with this one, I was in the, I saw this in the theater when it came out and people were you know the 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 sudden ending yeah. of of the film, him describing these dreams and leaving us in this moment, this this suspended state of of Tommy Lee describing to the audience because there's no one else in the film other than other than uh, other than Tommy Lee and describing these dreams to us and and his, I mean, this is not a hopeful ending. You know, like he is he is talking about you know visualizing this death of going to see his father after yeah, he dies yeah his father's waiting for him yeah waiting for him in in this in this place wherever it leads to reminds me a lot of the kind of you know ambig ambiguity of you know someone waiting for you after you die from um the man who wasn't there mm -hmm. and you know seeing this in the theater people are were not satisfied by this ending like Coen brothers films tend to leave really bad taste in a lot of people's mouths because of the fact that there isn't this like triumphalness to their to the oh no I mean this films. is this is intense this is not necessary this is a great ride but this is not a fun ride no they're not going to give you the satisfaction yeah. out of the end out of the end of this film and Cormac McCarthy as well is you know pretty insistent that you know um you know even the spring is just another setup for the for the you know dying for the of winter a, yeah, for the winter you know <laughs> there's no you know like you know it's like there's no Escape yeah, in the, it. <laughs> the spring is just when the flowers sprout around the skull. You They're know? all going like, to die yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly. There's always this 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 cyclical, difficult nature of 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 the inevitability of not only of of your end not being the end of things. Yeah. Like there is just this very kind of like you know larger scale to what is these story to how these stories kind of um, evolve and then resolve as well. And it's um it's difficult. For a lot of like normal cinema goers to kind of like handle this when there's not like this strike triumphalness at the end of a no, film of this overcoming is not, something. Yeah, this is not triumphant at the end by oh, any that's, means. See, that's weird. Like the ending of the I thought the ending of this movie was phenomenal. Oh no, I agree. I mean, look. No, we're just we saying agree. that it's not that that like if you're looking for a for a good happy ending, you it's should have not known here. Yeah. No, but like normal people in a movie theater. You know, watching this, they are... They get very off-put by yeah, sad like, endings. I, I'm not supposed to feel bad at the end of a movie. Like, I, I, I'll i buy... I, 
I'll forgive people who went and took their kids to see Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah. But <laughs> you should have known what you were getting into with this movie. He's got another animation, by the way, coming out. It's about dogs. Really? Yeah. Bizarre. I thought, next, I thought he completely estranged and pissed off his last animation team. Apparently, he found a new one. So yeah, yeah. Wes Anderson's new film is another claymation. Is it based on a rolled doll book again? I hope so. <laughs> Which ones are left? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, that's right. They just did the BFG, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, they're running out. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that covers yeah. basically. I mean, basically, we're left with a little ambiguity at the end. May make some people uncomfortable. Fucking deal with it. No, it's, you can't. You can't run from what's coming, folks. Yeah, it's no. just vanity. I I have to say that well, once again, I think top three top three Coen Brothers films for me on depending on the day, um, and and where they fall in that order. Um, you know, my favorite, my Coen Brothers and McCarthy, I think is a brilliant combination. And there's just something, uh, like I said, it's an exercise in filmmaking, right? If you want to, if you want to make or tell a story, right, knowing this film and studying this film, like once again, tell a story in any medium, right? Be it uh, in any way. Um, you, I think you need to be familiar with the, with this film. Um, and even less so with the book, but like with this film in particular, I think you have to be aware of this because. Uh, scene by scene, even building from moment to moment, this movie is amazingly well constructed. Amazingly well constructed. I can't disagree with that. No, this is. I thoroughly enjoyed watching this movie again. Um, it's it's good stuff. No, so I don't remember <laughs> if I specifically mentioned this anecdote last time when I was referring to the movie initially, but uh, my dad, who is normally very, very, very <laughs> critical of stories and movies, um, refuses to watch this movie again after seeing it in the theater because he he actually, like, not only was he awake uh-huh. for the whole movie, which already rules out two-thirds of movies, uh, but he couldn't find anything wrong with it mm-hmm. on the first watch. Yeah, like he made it all the way to the car from the movie theater to the car without coming up with something to complain about, which has literally never happened before. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I, can, I can think of no higher praise. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if uh, the, the distinction between favorite movie and best movie is an important one. I don't know that this is one of my favorite movies, but it is easily one of the best movies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It Absolutely. is it it is almost faultless mm-hmm. um, in its construction. And well, I mean, it's real. I can see why this might not be like on an emotional tinge, like your favorite movie to watch, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't watch it. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's put together quite. You got to watch the hard well. stuff too. Yeah, no, like <laughs> this, is, this one's right up there with uh, Speed Racer. As far as <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, so oh wait, who's getting the next guy? I have okay. no idea. <laughs> now that so, horror, horror month uh, is over, yeah, that Hortober fest. So I've been I've been floating some potential uh, uh, some potential picks. I've decided I was going to delay the obvious choice that I was going to make. Uh, what does for that this. even mean? So I was okay. Uh, so just for the uh, just for some tension here, uh, seeing that we now live uh, or will excuse me will be living in Trump's America. We already did. They live. Uh, and, yes, exactly. But I was actually going to go a little bit different. And since we haven't done Scorsese, I was going to do Gangs of New York. 
right? A nice nativist um, rant against the world. Oh, my, wait, wait, wait. You're sticking me with Anton Chigurh, and now you're going to give me Bill the no, Butcher? No, no, so we're not doing this. Okay. So I'm going to step because it down I'm like, a level. I don't know if I can take the charisma right now. Yeah, I know. It hurts. No, I, I, was figuring, I, I figured we could save that till after Inauguration Day. All right, so we'll save that till after Inauguration Day. Okay. So the film I want to do is, um, it's a, it's a, it is black and white. I'm sorry. It is black and white. <laughs> but um, it's it's also a film that I know no one has seen in our group. Um, and it is is one of the most impactful films for me. Um, and it's a movie called Nothing But a Man. And it is a an American neorealist classic from the 1960s. Uh, Nothing But a Man. And uh, this one will be off the off the radar for a lot of, a lot of people. How will I find this film? Uh, I'm actually going to get it through Netflix, so we'll check it out uh, okay. together. Yeah, I'm going to get it through, through Netflix. But, and um, what was that again? Zorka? Nothing But a Man. And um, So our tie-in is that they both reference man in the title. And I think so and it does take place in the South as well. Yeah, yeah. So we got we got uh, man and men. And um, but I wanted I wanted to kind of see this film because of uh, once again it's it's a, it's a movie that none of you have seen before. Um, but it is also a different take on a lot of the films that we've been looking at. And um, it is a film um, about uh, a black man and his family. And this is something that. I kind of wanted to bring in these alternate perspectives in film. I was going to pick Strassic because it's about a guy who's uh, mentally handicapped. And I, might, I still might pick that one if, if, if it's before Inauguration Day, before I get my next pick. Because I've kind of, just to break the themes down, I've wanted to kind of do movies that, you know, aren't about the kind of, or that are kind of trying to show the world from different perspectives. And this one takes a very, very important perspective and is... Uh, just really, really, really well known in 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 cinema history uh, for its time and its place and its integration in the mid 1960s, and it's just uh, it's also uh, benefiting in the sense that it's well done and it's got a nice simple story. And oh, it's fucking great! And so. if you haven't seen No Country for Old Men, it is on Netflix right now, I believe. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so just just watch it. Yeah, no doubt. Check it out. All, any Coen Brother movie you can find, watch it. It's, it's they're all amazing. Art and Fink's also on Netflix too, which is another great one. Oh, nice, nice. Ryan, yeah, actually, uh, did you like Inside Llewyn Davis? Yes, I did. Okay, yeah, I like them. I like that film. Right. Now, the only Coen Brothers movies I didn't like were the Hudsucker Proxy, uh, Lady Killers. Cruelty. What's that? That intolerable. Intolerable cruelty is fucking trash. Lady Killers isn't that it was good. Dumb. Um, and uh, this last one, this uh, Caesar movie, Hail Caesar. I actually Caesar. didn't mind that one that much. It's, it's it's low. It's their most average movie I've seen by them, and that's that puts it in the bottom third, at, uh, bottom quarter for me at least as well. The best thing about that was the Channing Tatum fucking musical number, which was fucking hilarious, by the way. But I really I have a man crush on Channing Tatum, so I can't help it. I really liked the sub scene in that movie. I did too. Oh yeah, okay. I, that... I think I think on the rewatch, it's not. I mean, it's not. It doesn't have the impact, no country for old men, but it's still a fun Coen brother ride. I, ju I just like the culmination of, instead of just being a bunch of blathering idiots, just pontificating all day, that these guys actually do have a connection with the Russian government yes. who is absorbing their members. Mm -hmm. Like, just that notion in the middle of a movie that otherwise is about nothing is no, well, really see, good. That's, I do want to watch it. I think the movie's about... Brolin again because he's in every as since no country for old men if you've noticed Josh Brolin's in everything yeah, yeah. Um, so well no I just I was not as taken with this it seems oh that, I didn't like the movie yeah, I just no. like that one scene I just really liked no it's it's got its moments I mean the best things f for me as well were the classic Hollywood eyes thing I was having like 
like hallucinogenic flashbacks during the, the Scarlett Johansson, um, the mermaid, yeah, thing. the mermaid thing. I thought that was fucking well as a number, right? As a yeah. production, those the those those were my favorite things because I was like, all right, now we're fucking, you know, it's like the dream sequence in Big Lebowski, you know, yeah, like it's like elevating the film to another level. But the problem was was that. You know, Lebowski takes you know takes me to the second story and moves me to the third. This one never gets off, never gets out of the fucking basement, as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, I get to get up and you know it's like the light coming through a little bit of a window, and I'm like, this is amazing. But then I'm back in the fucking darkness of just poorly written characters and you know overacted. And they're not good when they try to do comedy. If I if I could say it to the basic point of the yeah, thing. that and in Big Lebowski, uh, the dream sequences are aggressively unnecessary. Oh, but which that helps. but well, yes, well, no, that's, that's why, exactly that's why yes. they work. I know, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but very much in the same way that like True Grit has once again that I find that movie it, the humor in that film to be fucking really really enjoyable, yep. and it's but it's not a comedy, and yet it is perhaps one of their funniest and and most enjoyable films, and it's for some reason. Um, I find a lot of their comedic movies just to be not. Um, well, I find I find uh, the they one, just they just land more. The one duds. that we did do the the man who wasn't there. I find that one incredibly hilarious. Yes, it's, it's, it's not com- it's not like comedic at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Billy Bob Thornton, man. Yeah, yeah, dude. That, oh, yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, he's in um, the show Fargo. Have you guys seen the show? No. That's on FX. Holy fucking shit. I'm doing Westworld right now, but I'm on the fence. Yeah, I'm on, Westworld, I'm on the fence with it. I don't love it, but it is a good nighttime program. But um, but yeah, you guys should check out the first season of Fargo on Hulu. It is something to see. It is, it's good shit. Billy Bob Thornton is in it as well. It's also amazing. <laughs> Whew. I'm done, I'm done, I'm and done. On that All bomb right. show. Thank you so much. Uh, Nicole Ryan, thanks for being part of the Machination Log. Thank you. Good morning, everyone.